Thank you, Brother Stephen. Thank you, Jerry. Very well done, Psalm 103 this morning. Thank you, Brother Newell, for leading us in singing. You may open your Bibles to John chapter 15 as we turn in the Word of God for our study of His attributes this morning. God, based on His inherent attributes, is worthy of all glory and honor, praise and worship, love and service that we can possibly give Him. His infinity, His incomprehensibility, He's incomparable, He's independent, He's invisible, He's intelligent, He's immortal, He's immense, He's invincible, He's immutable, He's impeccable, and He's impassable. All the inherent attributes that He doesn't share with us because they're all His from beginning to end. And if all we knew about Him was those 12 attributes that are part of His unique nature, He's worthy of all the worship we can give Him. However, He's shown us so much more. And we've had a lot of that explained to us from Psalm 103 already this morning. We want to consider the attributes and acts of His that reveal Him, that discover Himself to us, that display Him, that manifest and declare Him to us. And so that's what we're considering now. What He reveals Himself, what He reveals about Himself, we're going to be considering in the weeks to come. But His choices and His means to reveal Himself to men spring from a nature of self-expression. Our God has part of His nature an attribute of self-expression or self-manifestation. When there are creatures, He wants to expose Himself to them and display Himself to them. It is part of His nature. He wouldn't have created them if He didn't have that as part of His nature because they are the objects of His display. And so we look at it as an attribute, not just the things that we learn about him from this display, but the display itself is part of his nature of self-expression. It is also part of his holiness to regulate the conduct of his creatures. So by regulating the conduct of his creatures, by revealing his laws, we learn a great deal about him because his laws reflect him. We know the character of our legislators We know the character of our judges by their voting record. We know the character of God by the commandments that He has given because they show the combination of virtues in His nature by the way that He takes care of different aspects of our lives through His commandments. Then there is the paternal affection that He has to communicate. As a father, He wants to shed His love abroad in our hearts. He wants the Holy Spirit to be calling out within us, Abba, Father. He has the paternal instinct of wanting to communicate to comfort us. It's part of the nature of God. He is so good. He has not left Himself infinite in heaven, distant, cold, great, I'll grant you, but intimidating. No, He's very close to every one of us. And He has revealed Himself by all kinds of means and through various ways that should encourage you how much He wants you to know Him. This class of attributes that I'm calling the declarative attributes or the attributes that reveal and declare God may seem a little boring to you. And you'd rather us leap ahead to the transferable ones or the relational ones. And I have that part in my flesh as well. But if you'll stop for just a little while and think about these, I hope that they can become crucial and exciting. Crucial in that if God hadn't revealed Himself, you wouldn't know about Him. You wouldn't have been able to hear the good things from Psalm 103 if God hadn't chosen to express Himself in writing when it comes to Scripture and a whole lot of other ways. And I hope that it becomes exciting because you can see how much He wants you to know about Him. He has been very thorough in giving us various ways and an immense library of information about Him. And if we love Him and truly desire to seek His face, we'll appreciate those things. I'd like to use John 15.15 this way. In the 14th, 14th verse, Jesus said to His apostles, 
Ye are my friends. Now that is one precious statement right there. That the Lord of glory would say that about fishermen from Galilee. Ye are my friends. If ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Now you may have heard and read and seen in Isaiah 41 that Abraham was the friend of God. But I want you to notice right here that the apostles were called the friends of God. And the things that God revealed to Jesus, Jesus revealed to the apostles. And the apostles wrote them down for us so that we have in writing, which is even better than the way that the apostles got it, What our Lord doeth. And I don't mean the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean the God of heaven has revealed the things that he does. A master keeps a distance. A good executive keeps some distance. So his servants and his employees don't know everything he's doing. First of all, they're not capable of fully comprehending it, nor applying it right to their daily jobs. So there needs to be a little distance. And with God, there could and should be some distance, and there is. But there's so much He's revealed to us. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, He said, I call you friends because I I have made known to you all things that I have heard of my Father. And I want you to think about these declarative attributes in the light of this text. That God has revealed to us what He is going to do, what He has done what he is like, he's discovered himself to us. And we should be thankful, because without the discovery, we wouldn't know him. We'd be in the dark about him. Now last Lord's Day, we looked at creation. Creation is the first way in which he's made himself known to man. The heavens declare the glory of God. He made himself manifest. The things that are seen reveal the things that were made, and the things that were made reveal the things that were not seen. We clearly saw, according to Romans chapter 1, His eternal power in Godhead, so that men are without excuse. And then we looked at Job and how God, when He would come down and speak to a man that knew Him quite well, would deal with creation in revealing Himself further and take up particular animals, whether it be the horse or the ostrich, whether the eagle or the peacock. There are aspects of those creatures, the ostrich included, the unicorn, that God wants us to look at because we can learn about Him from them. We can see Him. We can look at the stars. And we saw all that last Lord's Day, and that's the first way that God reveals Himself. He has discovered Himself. He has manifested Himself. He has declared Himself in the creation. When it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork, the sky shows how handy God is in making things, beautiful things, glorious things. And when you step outside on a beautiful, clear morning and the sun is shining brightly, that is glory that is a small token of His glory. And it declares the glory of God. Because for there to be such glory 93 million miles away from us that so affects our skin and so affects our heart and soul within us tells us that there is a master creator behind that little ball of fire in the sky that has glory far greater than the sun. But the heavens declare His glory. So we saw that last Lord's Day. A second attribute of God's declarative nature is that He is knowable. And while I've spent time on this before, let me very briefly cover these points. When we look at Him as a creator, we should stand amazed that He has shown us so much. He has created so much for us to enjoy. The three aspects of water, for for water to be hung in the sky in the form of vapor, that are beautiful clouds to us, for it to be ice in our drinks, and water in our showers and toilets, praise His name. H2O is an incredible thing. And it's just water. Praise His name, it's a wonderful thing. And we, we look at that and we stand amazed that He's disclosed so much to us. The baboon discloses a great deal to me. And I mentioned that to you last Lord's Day. Because God created the baboon and pulled down certain g- garments of clothing on it to reveal its flaming rear end for us to laugh at because He's got a sense of humor. The God of heaven from salt to sugar to honey 
all the things He's created, the, the benefits that we enjoy, the, the, the wonderful things He puts in our mouths and the pleasure He gives us from them. And when we look at that, we see that He's disclosed a lot. The Lord Jehovah is knowable. And better than that, He desires men to know Him. The infinite, independent, invisible, and incomprehensible God can be known. In a verse that I've shared with you in recent weeks, not only does He dwell with us, He dwells in us. This incomprehensible God, the God that fills heaven and earth, dwells in us. I hope you remember that David would say on his deathbed to Solomon, Know thou the God of thy father. Solomon, you can know the Lord Jehovah as I have known Him. If you'll seek Him, you'll find Him. If you depart from Him, He'll destroy you. And those were some final parting words from David to his son Solomon. In James chapter 4 and verse 8, it says, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. That is a promise. God is knowable. We can get very close to God, but I don't like to use we. I want to use you, and I want to use I can get very close to God. If you individually will draw close to Him, He individually will draw close to you. And an attribute of His that we'll see in the future is that He's able to draw close to you fully as He draws close to someone else fully somewhere else in the world. Because that is God. He is infinitely, always, everywhere, fully in His being. We look at the providence of God. The providence is God's government in the world. And God reveals Himself through His providence. The Apostle Paul preached in Acts chapter 14 when he told the idolaters there that God had not left Himself without a witness. There is another witness other than creation. And that is He sends fruitful seasons of rain that cause the earth to bring forth in great quantities good food. So He fills the hearts of men with food and gladness. That is a witness of God. That is what the Apostle Paul would refer to. Paul didn't quote Scripture when he's dealing with pagans. He quoted the good feelings they have after a good meal because all of it comes from God, showing that He is good and that He can send rain when their stupid idols can't send or do anything. And so we thank God for His providence in the lives of men. He sends His sunshine and His rain on the evil and the good. It hardens them in their sins and it causes us to rejoice and the difference is His grace. We looked at some of His personal providence in the life of Joseph. Did God take care of Joseph? Amen. When His brothers hated Him, when He was in a pit and they were talking about how they were going to kill Him, when He was sold to the Midianites, when he was accused of attempted rape, when he was brought before Pharaoh, did God protect him and providentially take care of him in marvelous ways? How about Ruth, the Moabitess? Did the Lord providentially take care of her? Indeed. Esther, the little orphan girl. Mordecai, her cousin. David, when he happened upon the battlefield, did the Lord provide things in his providence that that would be the moment that the big mouth of the Philistines would come out and blaspheme the God. He did have a big mouth. You know he did. He was nine foot nine inches tall. And he had a real big mouth when he wanted to blaspheme God. And David happened upon the scene right then. And all David could say is, is there not a cause? Because he could see the providence of God arranging that. And he knew the Lord had protected him with a lion and a bear. He could easily protect him with the Goliath. And Ahab saw the providence of God when he went to battle disguised, thinking that he would prove the prophet Micaiah wrong. That the Lord wasn't going to kill him that day in battle, and a chance arrow flung an adventure into the sky at a retreating army, found the cracks in his armor. And so we saw the providence of God that reveals God. Tender care. What loving story between Joseph and Jacob. What wonderful story as Joseph explained to his brothers, ye intended it for evil, God meant it for good. That is the providence of our God. And we rejoice in that. Let's come to a fourth category, a fourth attribute of the classification of declarative attributes. Turn to Psalm 9 with me. Psalm 9. 
We are dealing with the declarative attributes of God. Those attributes that are part of a nature that wants to express itself and chooses to express itself and has expressed itself in many different ways. And I want us to delight in these because this is how we get closer to God is by considering these things. Creation. That He is knowable in in the verses the Bible has about that fact and His providence, but now His judgments. In Psalm 9, the whole psalm is good, but the whole psalm would take too much time, so I limit myself to verses 15 through 17. Well, there's more, though. Psalm 9, verse 15. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. Do you want to know God? This is a knowable attribute of God. This is a declarative attribute. His judgments. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. And here it is. It's already been stated in verse 15. Here it is restated. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higion. Selah. Praise the Lord, consider these things, and pause. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. But I want you to notice here, because this is the theme that we want to have all day, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. Now verses 15 through 17 are ferocious. And those verses are terrible, and yet it says in verse 18, for the needy, shall not always be forgotten. How are we supposed to understand that? The ferocity of verses 15 through 17 are against the enemies and the oppressors of the poor. And we are the poor. You say, well, I don't know that I'm one of the poor. Well, blessed are the poor in spirit. Get poor right now. Because the real poverty that he cares about is not poverty in dollars and cents. It's poverty of spirit. So become poor in spirit right now and you qualify. The needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever because God will arise and judge his enemies. But I want you to notice the words and not forget them that open up verse 16. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. And here it is judgment in kind. In Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh told the people of Egypt that they should kill all the baby boys of the Israelites. Does it surprise you that 12 chapters later, the Lord sends the angel of the Lord into every home and barn of the Egyptians and kills their firstborn? Are you surprised? The Lord is known by the judgment which He executeth. The wicked is taken in the work of their own hands. And so you read that account in the first 12 chapters of Exodus and you punch the air and you say, the Lord, He is God. He didn't kill your baby. He killed their babies. Why? Because the the desire of the the poor and the needy will not always be forgotten. Their babies had been killed by the Egyptians. But God didn't forget. God doesn't forget. God may be slow sometimes, but when the wheels of divine justice finally turn, they grind to powder. Rejoice in His judgment. I love Judges chapter 1 that tells us about a man named Adonai Bezek. He had spent his life cutting off big toes and thumbs because he loved the kings that had to crawl around under his table begging for scraps. It's hard to walk without big toes, and it's hard to lift without thumbs. And so he got the judgment back on his own head in Judges chapter 1. Praise his name. I read about poor Hannah who was made fun of by Peninnah, the other wife of Elkanah, because Peninnah had children and Hannah had none. But we know God's judgment in that matter, don't we? Hannah gave birth to Samuel. Peninnah, every night when she went and picked up the paper at the door or went to the internet and hit the drudge report, 
Peninnah had to read about Samuel every day for the rest of her life. And then she had to keep finding out that, that Hannah was pregnant again. And again. And again. And again. And again. Oh, don't make fun of anyone, brethren. Because the Lord is able to bring sweet justice to the situation. Amen. Hannah had a passel full of children for Elkanah. And Samuel was known more than Peninnah's children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, all combined and squared. I look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, and I see God's judgment getting close to home. David took the wife of Uriah, one of his best friends. And so part of God's chastening upon David, and I want you to remember God loved David. David died in peace on his bed with a man beside him from the adulteress, Solomon. I want you to remember that, but, but I do want to remind you of this. In his chastening, David took the wife of a man named Uriah, his friend, God had Absalom, his son, take his wives on the rooftop of the palace of Jerusalem. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. Of course, you're all thinking, when are you going to get to Haman? Yes, I know. Haman worked hard. He had the best contractors in his backyard to build himself a nine-story gallows. That's quite a fall. It might do a little damage to your neck when you hit the end of that rope. We can, we should be able to find out in the annals of Persian history because Mordecai and his ten sons dangled off that gallows. And so when we read the book of Esther, we see the fulfillment, we understand the verse, the Lord is known by the judgment which he, which he executeth. And that is a varied set of illustrations that I gave you of different kinds and how the Lord judged in kind. Look at Psalm 83 with me. We're looking at judgments as revealing God to us. God's judgments. But we always want to be looking around the judgment. When I mention David and David's wives being taken by Absalom on the palace rooftop, I want you to remember that was only loving chastening. To remind David in his life, what a horrible crime he had committed, but he was entirely forgiven from the first moment he sensibly realized his sin and said, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord hath forgiven thee. And that was practically. You say, well, why did bad things happen in his life? Just for a reminder of how merciful and gracious God had been to him. While Absalom was on the palace rooftop, Solomon was with him, the son of Bathsheba. You just got to always be remembering there's a huge difference. It's a huge gulf. There's no fine line between the righteous and the wicked. When he chastens the righteous, and sometimes it can be quite severe, it's in loving kindness. In faithfulness he hath afflicted me. Zach would tell you if he was up here right now from Psalm 119. Psalm 83, verse 18 says that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. That is what we believe, and that is what men should know. How should they know it? Well, let's back up to verse 16. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the Most High over all the earth. How can we know that our God, whose name alone is Jehovah, is the Most High over all the earth? How can we know Him as God? Through His judgments, which is described right here, and it's actually the whole chapter. All of Psalm 83 is about this matter, and it lists a number of them, Beginning in about verse 6, down through verse 11, it lists them and some of their names and some of their places that God destroyed. 
He reveals himself through his judgments. By creation, he's knowable. By providence, by judgments. And so we look and interpret his judgments and apply them. Look at Psalm 46. I want to establish the point. But we don't have to beat the dead horse too many times. Meaning, an argument that has been proven, we don't need to keep proving it, but I want you to see the importance of His judgments. So that when you read in the Bible, over and over again about His judgments, instead of thinking, He wants to judge me. No, He wants you to know Him by His judgments of your enemies and His judgment of His enemies. He wants you to know Him. His judgments are a good thing. And even when they fall upon the righteous, they are just proof that He loves them. And they will not be condemned with the wicked. You know that He hasn't judged you according to your sins anyway. Not even close. We've already heard that this morning. Psalm 46. I know that some of you enjoy this psalm very much. It says in verse 8, Come, behold the works of the Lord. Is this Is this salt and honey? Is this the peacock and the eagle? Let's read. Behold the works of the Lord, what desolations He hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts. There's armies you can't see with your physical eyes is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. If you read that, it's his desolations in the earth that should cause us to call upon him and to know him. When you read in Isaiah 40 through 48, and it says, look unto me, all ye ends of the earth and be ye saved. It's not talking about Jesus Christ or the cross of Calvary. It's talking about God the Deliverer that can deliver His people from an enemy that appears to be invincible. That the great deliverance of anyone in trouble is to call upon the Lord Jehovah because those chapters are about His deliverance of His people Israel in a practical way from the oppression and and occupation and imprisonment of another nation. You're nearby. Look at Psalm 48. And verse 11, Psalm 48, 11, Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Was that verse ever fulfilled? It was fulfilled when Miriam took up her timbrel in a dance on the shores of the Red Sea as a few of those Egyptians that got their armor off before they drowned floated to the surface and came to shore and the dead waterlogged bodies of the Egyptians were there and the daughters of Israel took up a dance with their timbrels. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. So for the Lord's children, for his church, whether it be the church of the Old Testament or the church of the New, we should rejoice in his judgments. They shouldn't cause us fear. They're his punishment on our enemies and on his enemies. And the punishment that is coming is not against us. It's against them. He's going to burn up the whole place. And everything's going to melt with fervent heat so that we can be in the presence of the Lord in the new heavens and a new earth our whole lives. Look at Exodus chapter 7. The Lord appeals many times in Scripture to men knowing Him by His judgments. He did the things that He did so that men would know that He was the Lord. And if you were to do a search of all these, it would take you through much of Scripture. Exodus chapter 7 verse 5, of course, is God dealing with Moses and Pharaoh as Moses appealed to Pharaoh to let his people go. Verse 5, And the Egyptians shall know. That's what we're dealing with, knowing God. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Those ten plagues preached a sermon, I am the Lord. Your Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should serve Him? Well, they learned who the Lord was. Look at chapter 8 and verse 10. And He said, Tomorrow. And He said, Be it according to Thy word. 
that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. As Moses spoke to Pharaoh. Look at verse 22 in that chapter. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen. I am a discriminator and I will discriminate between the Egyptians and the Israelites. In which my people dwell that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end, that means to the purpose, or this is my reason, my goal, that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Because the flies would be in Egypt and the flies would not be in Goshen where the Israelites dwelt. You know what one fly does to your sanity when it gets in your bedroom at night? Can you imagine what Pharaoh went through with flies everywhere all the time and it wasn't one? It was hundreds, it was thousands, they were everywhere But if you were to go to the border of Goshen where the sign said you are now entering Goshen and you stepped on the other side, there wasn't a fly. So that you'll know that there's a God in the midst of the earth and I control flies. So when it's in your room at night, I still use the fly swatter, but I know it's the Lord teaching me a little thankfulness that for the most part we have sealed up houses and they don't get in. Thank you, Lord. And I'll kill it. And have dominion over your creatures. And thank you for teaching me that in the Bible as well. So many verses along these lines, but we'll not read them all. Oh, my brethren, don't be discouraged by the chastening hand of the Lord. You, You can call them judgments. You can call it damnation. But it never involves hell. It's called damnation in the Bible. But it doesn't involve hell. It involves His chastening. Look at Proverbs chapter 3. There's a warning here. Uh, There's a lesson for us. There's encouragement for us. I hope you've been encouraged this morning by Psalm 103. I hope you've been encouraged by Isaiah 41 and God defending His worm, Jacob. I hope you were encouraged by Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good in the midst of some verses of fury because they were against our enemies. That is good. With my wife last night having devotions, I was, I was telling her, why? Why would anyone be afraid of this God? This is like having a daddy that is the strongest daddy on earth. And if anybody on the street or if anybody in the city ever tries to do anything with that daddy's children, or if they ever try to sneak into the house at night, he's going to smash them. Wouldn't you love that daddy? Why do you fear that daddy? He's never going to smash you. And if he does smash you in your interpretation of that word, it is for your profit, his glory, and to prove that he's taking you to heaven. Even if his smashing is taking your life. You say, how do I know that applies to me? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptized. Keep his commandments. Fear him and put your trust in him. And you'll never be able to do it perfectly. And he knows that already. And he's already forgiven your imperfections. The wicked never think about God. God is not in all their thoughts. There's no fine line between the righteous and the wicked. Rejoice in this daddy of yours. And I don't like using that expression. I like father better because it's more reverent and formal. He's our father. Look at this little encouragement to you in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. My son, Rehoboam, Solomon writes, despise not the chastening of the Lord. When the Lord comes into your life and has to afflict you and slap you around a little bit, don't despise it. Neither be weary of His correction. Don't get tired of some negative things in your life. For whom the Lord loveth, He correcteth. Even as a father, the son in whom He delighteth. A good father, the best fathers that delight in their children, spank them Maybe the most. Because they want to perfect them. The Lord corrects whom He loves. If the Lord lets the wicked go on in their own way, what's it proof of? They're bastards and not sons. If every time you try to sin, you can't be happy doing it, and He starts messing with your life, praise His glorious name! What is the negative that you're worried about? Don't despise it. and Don't be worried. Even when His judgments come in your life, it's because He loves you. It's because He delights in you. 
Oh, those are, those are words that David said the Lord delighted in him. Do you mean he can delight in more than just David? Yes. Mm-hmm. He can delight in anyone that puts Amen. their trust in him and fears him. Amen. And the fear of him is not cowering in your closet. The fear of him is just not wanting to displease him and loving to praise him and reverently worshiping him. Amen. Okay, Zach. I hear you. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 about the Lord's afflictions. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Isn't that the truth? If the Lord didn't ever afflict us, would we get a little presumptuous in our sinning? In our casual approach to living? Before I was afflicted. So affliction is what God sends to stop it. Verse 67, but now have I kept thy word. Your affliction is a good thing in my life. Verse 71, it is good for me. Can you all say that? Can you read it? Can you hear it from my lips and believe it? It is good for me, not good for others. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. When you have trouble in your life, do you pray more than when you have blessings in your life? You don't have to answer that because I'll answer it for you. Absolutely and without a doubt. When everything is going right in your life, you presume that God is very happy with everything you're doing and you're so busy counting up the new barns that you're going to need to build for all His, all the goodness He's bestowed upon you, you are not praying as much. But when the Lord brings you down and can scare your wits out of you, then you call upon His name. It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. If that's what it takes to get you to pray more, it is good for me. If that's what it takes to get me to read His Word more, it is good for me. If it's if that's what it takes for me to make peace with my wife, it is good for me. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that Thy judgments are right, and that Thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. When God judges His children, it's in faithfulness that He afflicts us. I'm not going to turn you to 1 Corinthians 11 again. We've been there before. Whosoever eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. But that isn't damnation in heaven. That was the damnation, just another word for God's judgment, of being weak, of being sickly, and of dying prematurely. That ye should not be condemned with the world. It was proof. It's a very, very useful passage to show that the severest of chastening could be physical death, but it's proof that your name is in the book of life. Give me such a death. But we can choose better than that. We can choose to live righteously. And the Lord doesn't expect perfection because he's already sent Jesus Christ to make our imperfection perfect. We've never had a perfect Lord's Supper, trust me. You've never taken it perfectly. I've never administered it perfectly. But I thank God for 1 John 1, 7 that says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. That's why we use the word to sanctify the things that we do. In the name and by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, He sanctifies and makes holy and consecrates the imperfect things that we do. Don't ever think about his judgments without thinking about his long-suffering. Look at Exodus 34. God wants us to know him by his judgments. But we need to remember that he is long-suffering. Did you like Psalm 103 right in the middle where Jerry was reminding you that he's slow to anger and he's not going to chide forever? He's not going to keep his... He gets over it. How does he get over it? Because he's gracious. He's plenteous in mercy and all the different things that we read there. And, and when Moses saw the glory of God revealed to him in Exodus 34, remember how it occurred. Exodus 34, 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. Now this is Jehovah. You're getting combinations of the Hebrew tetragrammaton for I am that I am, and Adonai and Elohim in here with these combination of words, the Lord, the Lord God. But notice what it says about him. 
This is the glory of God. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy. Not tasting mercy, but keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now in case you thought your faults before God were iniquity, He didn't just say that He forgives transgression and sin. In case you thought yours was a transgression, He didn't just say He forgives iniquity and sin. He covers all bases, doesn't He? He says He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and upon the children's children into the third and the fourth generation. That's a whole different class of persons. Right in, right in the middle of that, there's a distinction between what he shows toward his children and what he shows toward the wicked. His mercy is upon children's children you had read to you from Psalm 103. The point that I want to make is, don't you read a passage like this, dive into the second half of verse 7 and say, this is the nature of God. Now, you would fit well in a Reformed church possibly trying that, but you're not going to fit well in this pulpit after this series. Because if you're going to get in this pulpit and talk about the nature of God, you're going to give it in His order. And you're going to give it with His emphasis. And you're going to give it with His proportion. And it's pretty significant. Turn to Exodus chapter 9. We're thinking about His judgments. He wants us to know Him by His judgments. There's a man in the Bible that was picked out for God's judgments. His name was Pharaoh. He didn't know Joseph or Moses until Moses came and had a chat with him. He's mentioned in Romans chapter 9 as well, in the 17th verse there. It's Exodus 9, 16 here. And the Lord says, And in very deed, for this cause, have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. I am calling these the declarative attributes of God because God uses that word. The heavens declare the glory of God and that my name might be declared. How is it declared? By what God did to that king and his nation through ten plagues and then drowning the army in the Red Sea. 500 years later, when the Ark of the Covenant was hauled into the battlefield by the Israelites... And their cry was so great at this new thing they had never done before that it echoed. And the Philistine armies that had gathered together heard that echo and their spies told them the Ark of the Covenant is on the battlefield. And their sages said, Do you remember what this God did to the Egyptians? 500 years later, it was still being taught in 8th grade world history. Yes. Why? so that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Look at what we're doing 4,000 years later. We're still declaring it. And to show in thee my power. Well, you can only show power, and I've preached this to you before, in a sermon entitled King of Kings. Unless you take on a king, you can't show kingly power. If you're a boxer, you don't box some little has-been second-rate junior Olympic champion. You want some world champion to show that you're the best. You have to take on the best. And so the Lord raised up Pharaoh to be the best of the best. And then took him down for the purpose of displaying himself. You know, I've, I hope that you've known this since you were a child. I hope you've rejoiced in this for a long time. I want you to understand this is how God has revealed himself. He raises up mighty men and then mightily destroys those Mighty men. Psalm 2 and verse 4. Our God laughs at the wicked. When you read what's going to come out of Charlotte in the next few weeks at the Democrat National Convention, you can laugh with the Lord. They're going to try to cast His cords away from our nation and break God's bands asunder. But he that sitteth in the heavens, according to verse 4, shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. It is not wrong to laugh. We call it holy laughter when we're laughing as God would laugh for the reasons that God would laugh. In this particular case, Psalm 2, it's about Herod and Pilate and the leadership of the Jews taking counsel together to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Lord let them do that. Then He raised Him from the dead. Then He had those... Anyway, then He destroyed them all 40 years later. Then He wiped out the Romans by the Visigoths in 476 A.D. But he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. In verse 6. This isn't the only place in the Bible this is spoken of. But it's the only one I'll mention today. God's wrath may be slow, but He remembers the wicked. And you should always remember that yourself. Look at in 1 Samuel 15, God told King Saul, I remember what Amalek did. And now therefore go and slay Amalek and his nation utterly. Verse 2 of 1 Samuel 15, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. I just want to remind you that by the Bible's own chronology, there's 500 years between the two events. You say, God has a good memory. You remember that when you look at the wicked and you wonder, where is the God of Elijah? I wonder sometimes. My wife wonders sometimes. Where is the God of Elijah? Where is the God of judgment? He remembers. He doesn't forget a single offense against him that hasn't been covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and proper repentance. It will be judged. This, this thing about Amalek reveals us something about God. Right. He remembers. You say, well, that scares me. Okay. Come here so I can pat you. Let me pat you. It's going to be okay, worm, Jacob. Right. I'm going to help you. Because the Bible says about you, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Amen. The difference is huge. Please find that difference with me. Remember, we're looking for the crown of the road. We hate ditches on either side. Does God sometimes like to put nations to a perpetual reproach? Yes. Do you get enjoyment out of that? You should. Psalm 78 is where I'm turning you. Psalm 78. You know, we were mocking Pharaoh about the flies. Have you ever had garlic bread with chunks of garlic in the bread? Have you ever had fly bread? Have you had frog bread? It tells us that. Where were the frogs in Egypt? In the kneading troughs. Guess what that meant? He was having frog sandwiches. Some of you are smiling, and I love every one of you that smile at that. That's what it's written for. He put them to a perpetual reproach. Because they tried to make their nation great with these pyramids, sphinxes, punishing the Israelites, he said, I'm going to make you a base nation forever. And they have been a base nation forever. They are nothing. I remember in 1967, I was only 10 years old, but I remember the Six-Day War. It's called the Six-Day War because mighty Egypt brought all their military on the south of Israel against Israel, and Jordan brought it against Israel on the east, and Syria brought it against Israel in the south, and so little tiny Israel had to divide up their army and send one-third of it against the Egyptians, and they chased them straight back across Gaza into Egypt and left the burning hulks of their World War I surplus junk because it's a base nation. And I love the Word of God, and I love every Word of God. And when the Bible says a nation is base, I just look at a few statistics about it and realize it's base. The Bible is true. And if the statistics don't show it, I still know the Bible is true. But about Egypt, the statistics show it. Psalm 78. The second clause and half of verse 66. He put them to a perpetual reproach. What is that? The Philistines. What did he do to the Philistines? Kill Goliath? Emrods. They were smitten with hemorrhoids in their secret places and mice throughout all their coasts. 
Oh, did he make a mess of the five capital cities of the Philistines. It says in the first half of verse 66, he smote his enemies in their hinder parts. And he means the area where the sun don't shine and the hemorrhoids grow. They're called emrods. And there's two chapters in your Bible about it. In order to make peace with the Lord Jehovah, what did they have to do? What did their priests have to say that needed to be done? We need our best craftsmen to come, and we need a model or two so that we can make some golden hemorrhoids. We need five golden hemorrhoids, one for each of our capital cities of Philistia to send back to the Lord Jehovah in order to get rid of these hemorrhoids. They didn't need proper preparation H. They needed five golden hemorrhoids. I love that God. That should be in every Bible story book. It's two chapters worth in the Bible. Daniel and Lions Dead only has one chapter. Why don't they have that in Bible story books? I needed to know more about that God. I love that God. The Philistines deserve that. They took the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Jehovah that had stood in the middle of the Jordan River and stacked up those waters. They took that and put it before their fish god, Dagon, and that god fell down two days in a row and worshipped that ark. And they kept the ark. They deserved what they got. I mean, it just gives me a... I love the Word of God. He put them... He hid them in the hinder parts. You know, someone's reading their Bible through in a year, so they've got three chapters to read before they go to work. They rip through that, and they're thinking to themselves, there must have been some military skirmish against the back... The, the rearward parts of the army. No, uh-uh. You just got to go read First Samuel 5 and 6 and rejoice in the Lord your God. This is our God. He wants you to know Him by His judgments. He, te- he told you to know, him, know me by my judgments. The Lord is known by the judgment which He executeth. This is what He executes. Oh, there's so many things that we could cover, and I want to finish this before we go to break. There's so many, you know that the list could be long of His judgments, and they're wonderful. Do you know that the idea for Israel to pass their seed through the fire and burn their children was from the Lord? Because they didn't like His good commandments, He gave them some bad commandments. Let that be a reminder. That was His church. Let that be a reminder to all of us that we love His commandments and keep them. Things said in haste should not be said. And those of you that are quick-tempered and say things quickly, you're going to be judged for it. Here and later. Israel said when they heard about this, the uh, giants in the land of Canaan, would to God that we had died in Egypt or died in this wilderness. And the Lord said, I like the sound of those words. Okay, you'll all die in the wilderness. Don't you say anything like that when you hear that something difficult is in your life, you little babies? Don't talk that way. Would to God that we had died in the wilderness just because you're a little hurt. God said, that is what you're going to get. Forty years long did they wander around in the wilderness until they all died. Calling you babies, I mean, that is a babyish approach to life. Negative things are going to happen in your life. Don't blame God. Don't say anything. Don't say you wish you didn't have children. Don't say you wish you hadn't been married. Don't say you wish you didn't know about this church. Don't say you don't want anything. The Lord can take away the blessings He's put in your life with one choice because of the foolish things that you say. Now am I getting home? Don't say those things. I can be as quick speaking as anyone. I'm as much of a baby at times in the flesh as anyone. But God, save us. Because the Lord is known by the judgment which He executeth. And that's one of the things He warns us about. His blood be on us and on our children. The Jews said. It was. On them and their children. His prophets are dear to Him even when 42 children are involved. That's quite a judgment to remind. Touch not mine anointed is what it says. The greatest king was reduced to the lowest man for his pride. Don't you worry about anyone that's high in political circles in our world. Integrity in God's house is crucial, as Sapphire discovered too late. You make sure that your actions and your walk is every bit or more than your impressions and your talk. God sees the difference. And he dropped Ananias and Sapphira dead in the church at Jerusalem. 
Remember God's care for details? No, no believer that ever wants to talk and witness to another should ever forget this. God's care for details and the examples that are given to us in Scripture. Cain brought a sacrifice at the right time to the right place to the right God. Now what is wrong with that? It just wasn't the right sacrifice. Moses. In reading Deuteronomy 4 last evening, I saw that even at the end of his life, he said, I have to die on this side of Jordan, telling Israel with his final words, I have to die on this side of Jordan because of you people, because they had pushed him too far one day. The Lord punished him by not letting him into the land of Canaan. But Moses was told to speak to the rock. He smote the rock. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. Forty years of good behavior. He can't go into the land of Canaan. You see, see, that's the God I'm afraid of. Well, why don't you read Hebrews chapter 3 where it says that Moses was faithful in all my house. God loved Moses. Both testaments. Right. So he spanked him a little bit. Didn't, haven't you your children? Yeah, except sometimes you spank your children and take out personal frustration. He's never done that. Right. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire and were burnt up before the Lord. Uzzah was killed, reaching out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant that David was moving the wrong way. Uzziah the king thought he could go in and offer incense and leprosy rose up in his face. The Lord is known by the judgment which he, which he executeth. He cares about details. When you try to tell someone about the way that we worship, and they're not familiar with caring about details because all that matters is that we love Jesus. They don't care which Jesus because they have never heard about another Jesus. Right. But all they can talk about is, as long as we love Jesus, that's all that matters. But then you take them to the Bible and you remember these. and You remember Cain. And you remember Moses and Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah and Isaiah and others. The Lord is known by the judgment that he executeth. Look at Psalm 105. And with this we'll close. Psalm 105. Verse 12 tells us in Psalm 105, When they were but a few men in number, yea, very few, and strangers in it, this is in the land of Canaan, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. You know, there were some struggles and difficulties for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the land of Canaan. When they went from one nation to another, there were famines and there were wars, and Lot was taken captive, and there were difficulties over wells and covenants. And Simeon and Levi wiped out a city of the Shechemites. And there's all these troubles. But even though there were some of these troubles brought on either as, a, as glory to God, expansion of their territory, building of their name, profit of their souls, increase of their faith, punishment for their own foolishness, in all those cases, the Lord God protected them. Always protected them. Suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes. So when we come to this great subject of the judgments of God, the Bible tells us the Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. However, that judgment in fury, in indignation, in anger, in wrath is poured out upon his enemies and upon our enemies. Because we want to remember that the Lord is good. He is a stronghold them that put their trust in him. When you think about the flood, one of the most, one of the greatest judgments in the Bible. Remember, Noah and his family did not get wet other than their bathing. Though the flood was terrible. When you look at the flood, why would you ever imagine yourself in the water on the outside? Why don't you imagine yourself feeding the animals on the inside? Right. Why would you ever think of yourself on the outside? You say, well, I just don't know. If I'm in the ark, I want you to know that those on the outside never came and humbled themselves to Noah, a preacher of righteousness for 120 years at all. They rejected his warnings. They rejected his call for repentance. 
They were filled with, with only with thoughts of wicked and evil continually from their youth. Is that a description of you? If it is, then you are picturing yourself in the right place. But if you do put your trust in God and you do love God and you confess your sins when you sin against Him, you're on the inside of the ark because God has already put you in Christ and closed the door. You can't even fall out or get out. And it's a choice whether we're in the waters or in the dryness of the ark in our minds. The Lord's already put us in the ark those of you that believe on Him and live accordingly. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word, that even when we come to judgments that declare Him to us, those judgments are against the wicked. Whenever they're against us, they're in love. And we shouldn't despise them nor be weary at them, but be thankful that until I was afflicted, I went astray. But your your afflictions toward me are good, Lord. And let us have that attitude. May the Lord be praised, our great God. Amen. Amen.